Hey everybody, welcome to The Briefing Room on this Wednesday. I'm ABC's Devin Dwyer in Washington with our Deputy Political Director, Mary Alice Parks. Great to have you with us. A lot of news developing right now on day 33 of the federal government shutdown stretching into historic territory. Uh, a little bit of movement, Mary Alice, that we can get into a little bit later. The Senate set to vote on two bills, two measures to potentially reopen the government. Stay tuned on whether you think those are actually going to uh, <laughs> Either do, way, all of a sudden, Mitch McConnell is stepping but some in off yeah. the sidelines. So we, yeah. we do have some action to yeah. talk about coming up, but first I want to start with the human impact. Yeah. The pain is spreading. The economic financial hardship is getting worse. We just saw a live picture uh, from the Hart Senate office building on Capitol Hill. Take a look. Uh, hundreds of federal employees who have been furloughed without pay now for a month have showed up to protest the shutdown in the Senate office building of all political stripes, really. Uh, and of course, these scenes have been playing out um, across the country. The District of Columbia today said they're losing $12 million a week because of wages uh, like from these folks rippling through the economy here locally. Um, and, you know, we're hearing from a number of these people, Mary Alice, who have been out of work. Not only are they restless, they're feeling demoralized because their, their job, their work hasn't been valued. They're struggling to actually find ways to make money in the meantime, because there is no light at the end of this tunnel. And they're having to pay more out of pocket. I was struck by the news overnight that some federal workers might have to pay more in vision and dental health insurance coverage. So they're not getting paid, and yet they're also losing some benefits. Um, also, you saw just in the last few hours, one of the admirals in the Navy really sticking by his Coast Guard colleagues, really calling for an end of this shutdown, pretty political move from military leaders, but they're saying it's just not right for servicemen and women in uniform who are patrolling the seas, as he said, to have to do so without pay. Yeah, the only military branch serving without pay. We're going to talk to some Coast Guard officials uh, and employees coming up, but first, uh, our Erica King traveled uh, out into the district today to talk to one DHS lawyer who's been furloughed, uh, who told us some of the unique ways she's trying to make a buck to pay her bills. Take a listen. I've been a federal employee for 15 years, and um, sometimes you have to laugh. <laughs> um, so I have been working on a greeting card line called Federalisms um, to kind of um, express what we're all thinking uh, in a kind of fun in a fun way. My friends have been, um, you know, kind of smiling at me, knowing that I take any opportunity to make a new project. I kind of it's hard for me just to sit on the couch. My friends are not surprised that I am also pursuing a, a business like activity, a creative business-like activity while uh, on shutdown. The furlough has given me time to work on it. Uh, it's something I would have done anyway, but it certainly seems more timely now. Um, I don't want to say popular because it certainly shouldn't be a popular thing, but it seems um, kind of more in vogue to be a federal employee right now. Well, I'm looking forward to getting back, but I'm also um, I'm an optimist. I try to enjoy um, all my time. Um, so I'm enjoying my time home, working on uh, this business pursuit, seeing my friends and uh, spending time with my dog. Yeah, we're all just hoping it gets resolved soon, but trying to make the most of it because what else can you do? Our thanks to Erica King for that and to Rebecca Brown for sharing her story with us. And uh, Mary Alice, it's not just uh, workers like Rebecca who have been out of work all this time trying to make money. We're, we're hearing a lot of stories from people who have been called back in, right. IRS workers, State Department officials. They had been furloughed initially. Now they're being called back to work, still not getting paid. Um, and some of those guys are filing financial hardship exceptions, things like having to pay the gas on the commute right. in. They can't even pay for their, their commute. I mean, obviously, 
here in D.C. with a lot of federal workers. There's a guy across the hall in my building uh, who had just told me that he was considering driving for Uber, looking for some of those extra ways to make extra money. And then all of a sudden, he was called back to a job at the State Department. He had been furloughed for a long time, and then the government essentially changed their mind, asking him to come to work, but again, come to work without pay. And we're seeing some pictures here from other federal workers, including the, these are some IRS workers, air traffic controllers, FBI agents, all speaking out, TSA agents, in the last few days. Uh, one group, though, as Mary Alice mentioned earlier, the U.S. Coast Guard, the only military branch serving, in many cases, in harm's way. We learned yeah. uh, overnight from the Coast Guard Admiral that they have been patrolling the seas in the Persian Gulf. They've been doing drug interdictions in, in the Caribbean. Dangerous jobs, families at home, no paycheck. It's a difficult scene. Uh, here's what um, Admiral Carl Schultz, the commandant of the Coast Guard, said this morning in a video. Pretty extraordinary to hear from him on just what those Coast Guard uh, employees are facing. Take a listen. Shipmates, thank you for continuing to stay on the watch. The Mass Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, myself, and your senior leadership team, as well as the American public, stand in awe of your continued dedication to duty and resilience of that and your families. We're five plus weeks into the anxiety and stress of this government lapse and your non-pay. You, as members of the armed forces, should not be expected to shoulder this burden. I remain heartened by assistance available to you within the lifelines and by the outpouring of support from local communities across the nation. But ultimately, I find it unacceptable that Coast Guard men and women have to rely on food pantries and donations to get through day-to-day -day life as service members. This week, we'll hit another sobering milestone, and that's potential non-payment of our civilians on Friday. We have a workforce of 8,000 civilians that work alongside the uniform members of the world's best Coast Guard, doing tremendously important things each and every day. Myself and your service secretary, our service secretary, the Honorable Kirsten Nielsen, will continue to seek solutions. I will continue, along with the Master Chief, to take to Capitol Hill to message the critical importance of putting paychecks in the men and women's hands that serve in the world's best Coast Guard. The image of those Coast Guard uh, members having to go to food pantries, uh, what the Admiral was talking about, really yeah. something to think about. Um, I want to bring in uh, now John Ostrowski. He's the president of the Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer Association, uh, who joins us now live. John, thanks so much for coming in. Your group has been one of those helping Coast Guard members and their families. Uh, you also have been appealing to lawmakers here in Washington on Capitol Hill. In fact, you were up there yesterday, spent some time also with Speaker Pelosi. Give us a readout of those meetings. What was your message? to the lawmakers you met with and how were you received? Well, thank you for having me. The message uh, that we uh, had yesterday for uh, both the House and the Senate, we had roughly uh, 30 chief petty officer association members and spouses uh, help us distribute packets uh, to all of the over 500 offices on the Hill to inform them of two bills, H.R. 367 and S-21 to pay the Coast Guard. And the message that we, uh, we, we, we handed out to them was that our Coast Guard is suffering and they're doing their mission, they're doing their jobs, they're protecting the nation, but uh, their, their will and their, their morale is, is being affected by this. And eventually that leads to, uh, to dangerous situations. Mm -hmm. um, but we, uh, we had meetings with mostly only the staffers, and uh, uh, 
Ms. Pelosi's uh, staff, uh, we met with the chief of, of staff there, and they were very empathetic. But the, it looked like the long-term solution from her office was to get all 800 uh, federal employees paid. And we were trying to, dis, you know, to separate and show the difference that we are military, we are working side by side with our DOD uh, brothers and sisters around the world operating and doing our mission as we're supposed to. And, uh, and it's very hard to uh, be sitting or working next to uh, another shipmate or a soldier when they're being paid and you're not, and you're constantly worrying about uh, how you're gonna feed your family back home. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I've been struck, John, by the fact that this is the first shutdown. There hasn't been a PR military, PR Coast Guard Act passed by bipartisan majorities ahead of time. Every other shutdown, we should remind people, the military, including the Coast Guard, have been paid. They've been taken off the table. Are you surprised that in this instance the, the, the Coast Guard is getting this kind of treatment? Uh, I, I'm shocked that you even have to make that case to, to both parties, particularly given their lip service to love of the military, love of the Coast Guard. Yeah, it, it is shocking to me. Uh, this has never happened before, and when, when, when this is all over and the government's back operating again, we need to look at legislation uh, for the long term to avoid the military and the Coast Guard from ever having this again. And, and quite frankly, I'm disappointed. I'm expecting that, uh, that all uh, leadership from both the administration and the uh, House and the Senate, they should probably have a joint press conference and apologize to this nation altogether, because this is a disgrace. And, and our government isn't functioning properly when this happens. You know, we all raised our hands uh, and swore to defend the Constitution of the uh, United States and obey the orders of our Commander-in-Chief, and we have done that no matter who is sitting in that seat. And to see this happening right now is just shameful. You know, to underscore that point of why the Coast Guard has been singled out, it's because they're funded through a different mechanism, housed under the Department of Homeland Security, something that most Americans might not know. Do you think that moving forward there could even be long-term legislation to reorient and put the Coast Guard back under the Department of Defense? You know, I don't know uh, if, how that will work out with the lawmakers. Uh, you know, we have unique authorities uh, for law enforcement and drug interdiction, so I suppose, you know, they can make any law that is necessary to make that happen. But I can almost guarantee you that if the Coast Guard appropriation was its own bill every year and not part of DHS or DOD, we would probably have bipartisan support, 100 percent support every single year because of the mission we do. Uh, I don't think there would be anybody complaining about that. But with the political uh, uh, fighting going on right now, we're pretty much caught in the crosshairs here, along with our uh, other uh, uh, 800 furloughed and, uh, employees out there. And so it's kind of a, it's a sad day uh, for the Coast Guard and the rest of the government that's uh, not getting a paycheck. Hey, John Ostrowski, president of the Ch uh, Coast Guard Chief Petty Officers Association. Thanks so much for coming in, John. Our thoughts are with you. Thank for your service. Thanks for your organization's service yeah. as well. Thank uh, you. Hope you come back soon. Uh, moving on now, another big development, Mary Alice, off Capitol Hill today as the shutdown continues to play out. We're seeing Democrats uh, who had called President Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, former attorney, uh, to testify next month before he reports to federal prison. Uh, that's suddenly now in, uh, been called into question. Michael Cohen put out a statement a short time ago. Take a look. He said because of threats from President Trump,
Uh, he's going to be unable to testify before the House Oversight Committee on the 7th of February. Um, and uh, he still, you know, is cooperating with the special counsel. He said he hopes he can do it at some, at some point. This is from his attorney, Lanny Davis. Uh, and in a short time later, uh, Mary Alice, we saw a, a separate statement from uh, the head of the Oversight Committee, uh, Elijah Cummings of Maryland. He's the chairman. He said he's still, uh, those conversations are going to continue. He said, uh, we will not let the president's tactics prevent Congress from fulfilling our responsibility. They fully expect to hear from Michael Cohen. In fact, they really want him to come in before he goes behind bars because they want um, they want to get some of those details about that the, the crime that Michael Cohen has alleged the president was complicit in. Yeah, I don't think this is just the end of this. We could see Congress use their subpoena power. We could see more negotiations to try to get Michael Cohen in the door. You know, it's interesting. Democrats always wanted this to be a very public hearing. Uh, I think there was some frustration that there was deals made with the uh, with the court in New York that kept some of the details, some very juicy details, from uh, being aired publicly. And Democrats have wanted to, to go through that level of oversight. I think we will definitely hear more about how he might make it to Capitol Hill still. And let's go to the White House now where Jordan Phelps uh, has been reporting on this. The president uh, just weighing in uh, as well. Jordan, um, you know, how significant, you've also been tracking the Democrats' push to get Michael Cohen to appear. How significant was Michael Cohen's testimony to their effort uh, to, to, to paint a picture about the president? Michael Cohen is critical, Devin. Of course, he's this guy who has so much information on the president, was one of his closest aides for a decade, and has since turned on the president. So uh, this is a, a loss for the Democrats on, on that front. Uh, and it's, it's a win, really, for the White House, because they definitely don't want Michael Cohen going up there uh, to Capitol Hill and spilling the beans. Uh, we just heard from the president reacting to this, uh, asking, uh, he was asked specifically about Michael Cohen saying he's been threatened by the president. The president said, no, I would say he's been threatened by the truth. He's only been threatened by the truth. Uh, so the president um, batting back against this idea that he's threatened Michael Cohen, but there's got to be a sigh of relief internally here at the White House, Devin, that he's not going up in front of lawmakers later uh, in just a couple weeks. But you can imagine the Democrats are going to drill down on that accusation from Michael Cohen. There's all kinds of reasons that Michael Cohen could have given for not being able to testify in just a few weeks. He could have said, I'm still in working with the investigators. Uh, there's still questions with, with sentencing, with ongoing criminal cases. Uh, but for him to point the finger directly back at the president uh, is, is is fascinating. It's very significant. And this is the first time we would have had an opportunity to hear from Michael Cohen on those explosive allegations he made in pleading guilty. He said that the president directed him to make those payments to Stormy Daniels and other women to silence them in order to help him win the election. It's an explosive uh, campaign finance violation. The president, essentially an unindicted co-conspirator in that claim, he was going to be in the hot seat. He was going to face questions. It would have been uh, fascinating. I don't think, as you said earlier, that this is this is over with yet, so we could hear from him again soon. Uh, meanwhile, moving on now, uh, on the heels of the biggest bipartisan uh, legislation in this town in all of last year, the criminal justice bill uh, that was passed and signed by President Trump. I don't know. You didn't get a lot of attention, did it? <laughs> Other bigger headlines. There were a lot of headlines, but it did but it was get significant. bipartisan It was very support. significant. Yeah. Well, there's another effort afoot right now uh, to keep the momentum going. A new group of sports stars, businessmen, entertainment figures uh, joining forces to keep uh, the pressure on for criminal justice reform. Uh, our Will Reeve uh, was there this morning for the announcement. Uh, one of them, as you're seeing in some of the video here, Meek Mill, uh, award-winning recording artist. Uh, Robert Kraft, owner of the Patriots, was among those joining this group. Will... 
tell us about the group. What are, what are they pushing for on top of what Congress has already done here? Well, uh, don't forget Jay-Z as well. He was one of the, <laughs> the many big names there, uh, headlined by Meek Mill, Michael Rubin, the co-owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, Bob Kraft, as you mentioned, and a bunch of heavy hitters from finance. They were all together uh, to announce the formation of the Reform Alliance. It's an initiative aimed at tackling criminal justice reform. And they're going to start out, they've got $50 million pledged from, from these eight people who are on this preliminary board. So they're well-funded. They're going to partner up with a bunch of um, grassroots and ground-level groups. And their CEO, it was announced today, is Van Jones, the political commentator and social activist. And he said that these groups forever have been making uh, miracles out of dimes, and now they have a whole bunch of dimes and a whole bunch of press because Meek Mill, uh, among others, uh, have been through this system and they know what it's like. And I actually got to catch up with Meek Mill um, after the event, and I asked him what motivated the formation of this group and what success might ultimately look like. Mere mistakes can put you in prison when you uh, are caught up in these type of situations. And I think uh, it's a problem that needs to be addressed. It's 2019. I've been in my whole adult life. I got caught in a situation at the age of 18, and I'm 31 years old now, and I got a voice to speak out about it. And uh, I think you should hear it. If you, you have morals, integrity, if you believe in change, doing right and wrong, like you said, why? Because it's right. It's the right thing to do, and we're doing what's the right thing to do. A success looks like uh, changing the system, fixing the system. We're not trying to break the system. Uh, we're not trying to be rebellious. We're trying to do what's right and uh, fix the system where it needs to be fixed. And so the way that they intend to change the system, at least to start, is by targeting the 4.5 million people in America on parole or probation and trying to remove one million of those people from the criminal justice system. These people uh, get back into the system on technical violations. Meek Mill was put back in prison on a two to four year sentence for popping a wheelie on a dirt bike and then breaking up a fight at an airport. And that put him back in the system. Uh, and then of course he was famously freed. There was the hashtag free Meek movement on social media. And now he's trying to use his voice to give voice, he said, to the voiceless, Devin. Yeah, and well, before we let you go, a lot of people talking about online the fact that Robert Kraft has joined this uh, this operation. He, of course, has been in this fight with Colin Kaepernick over the NFL protests and alleged collusion to block box him out of the NFL. Um, give us your take on uh, Robert Kraft's involvement in in this, and, and and whether you see it to be any way ironic. Well, his involvement stems from his relationship with Michael Rubin, who, again, is the co-owner of the 76ers and is good friends with Meek Mill and who led the charge to get Meek Mill out of prison. Michael Rubin picked Meek Mill in a helicopter, picked him up in a helicopter from prison the day he got out in April and brought him uh, to a 76ers game immediately. And Robert Kraft actually is friends with Michael Rubin, and they, they visited Meek in prison. And, and Bob Kraft said up on the stage today that he was just taken by uh, Meek's plight and how it represented the plight of many other people, millions of people who don't have the platform that Meek Mill has. He said that the system is a, quote, cuckoo system, and he wanted to do his part uh, to help fix it. So how that relates to Kaepernick, I think, is a discussion for another day, but he certainly was up there uh, lending his support and his money. And I should also note um, just something that I found very striking and sort of dri drove home the message of why these people were up on this stage and have created this group. Meek Mill had to ask 
his parole officer for permission to come to this event up in New York to announce the formation of the Reform Alliance. He is on probation until 2023. That'll be almost 15 years of being within this system for a crime that he is confirmed to not have actually committed back in 2008. Well, remarkable. Wow. Will Reeve, thanks so much for that and for your reporting and for your interview with Mil Meek. Thank you so much. Uh, it is fascinating that this, you know, even though this town, in terms of the policy side of things, did accomplish something, there's still so much more uh, to be done in terms of shaping the criminal justice system, the sentencing side of things, the enforcement side, and of course, what, what's happening inside the prisons. And I imagine we'll see some states starting to really lead the way at the state level as well, because there's a number of conservatives. They look at the workforce issues, the expense of, of a criminal justice system that they say is just totally out of whack. We've seen partnering across the aisle and, and yeah, maybe partnering continue. with a lot of conservatives yeah. as well. Uh, moving overseas now uh, to some major breaking developments right now in Venezuela, uh, where uh, huge protests have turns out, turned out of, in the streets there in Caracas uh, against uh, President Nicolas Maduro. Uh, quite a remarkable scene. Uh, meanwhile, the opposition leader uh, Juan uh, Guaido has declared himself. He's the president uh, of the National Assembly. He's declared himself president of the country and. Just moments ago, the president of the United States has waded into this and declared the U.S. will recognize this man, uh, Juan Guaido, as the official president of Venezuela. What the heck is going on here? And the president, of course, famously, President Trump, has threatened potential military involvement there. We're joined now by Jeff Ramsey. He's a Venezuela analyst at the Washington office in, uh, on Latin America. He joins us by phone. Jeff, help us make sense of this. What's your bottom line? What's the takeaway for how significant this development is uh, with President Trump getting involved. Thanks, Evan. Yeah, you know, I think it's really important, uh, you know, despite all of the announcements today, to not confuse uh, de facto power with uh, legitimate authority. Uh, so while Juan Guaido is claiming the constitutional authority to uh, serve as interim president of Venezuela, the truth is that Nicolas Maduro still controls the guns, and he still sits in the presidential palace. Um, he controls the armed forces, and uh, the truth is that while there have been major protests against him uh, around the country today, uh, you know, it seems like those protests alone have not been enough to force a split uh, within his ruling coalition. And, Jeff, do you think that, you know, actually, we're just learning right now, too, that uh, Maduro has announced he's cutting off ties with the United States, kicking out all American diplomats in the next 72 hours. But uh, what do you make of the president, President Trump's statements about possible intervention in Venezuela? It's clear he's trying to help uh, Guaido uh, come to power there. Do you think that, th that President Trump can have any influence on that? And do you think there's any chance that he would pull the trigger on a military move? You know, I, I think uh, the people in the National Security Council and in Department of State fully understand that military intervention in Venezuela would be a disaster. Uh, it would be a uh, logistical nightmare and a complete bloodbath, most likely. Um, having said that, you know, I think that really the, the push behind all of this, this international momentum, this embrace of Guaido as interim president, I think it's designed to encourage people within Maduro's coalition, and particularly within the armed forces, to uh, break from the government and to uh, embrace a, a transition. I don't think we've actually seen that materialize just yet, um, but I do think that you know it's important that uh, the opposition in Venezuela, for the first time, 
has offered an amnesty for uh, Venezuelan uh, military figures to break from, from Maduro, and they're uh, reaching across the aisle and encouraging people in, in, in the Maduro government to uh, uh, support a return to democracy. Certainly a project that the Trump administration has tried to foster. They've been very involved on there, particularly Mike Pence. Uh, Jeff Ramsey, thank you so much. Washington office on Latin America, Venezuelan analyst. Appreciate you joining us today by phone. It's certainly worth keeping an eye on that. Uh, you know, finally today, there's with all the po political posturing in this town around the shutdown, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the, the posturing and the antics, if you will, around the State of the Union. It's supposed to happen uh, less than a week now. Mm -hmm. Next Tuesday, the 29th, we, we finally followed the saga, the uh, Speaker of the House invited the President, the President accepted. She then seemed to walk it back. Well, today, Mary Alice, it was official. Yeah, I mean, she, I, I, the plot. I, she did, but <laughs> we were debating downstairs. I mean, who knows? We still have a few more days. You're right that it looked very official today. She, The President basically forced her hand, and she had to go that extra mile and disinvite him, not bring a resolution which is required to formally invite the president to speak there in front of Congress. But, you know, the State of the Union, delivering the State of the Union is a constitutional mandate. So whether or not the president does it in front of Congress or does it in some written form, uh, Congress is going to expect an update from this White House. I don't think this is the end of the saga. Right. So she says, we're not having it on Tuesday unless the government's open. President dared her. She pulled the trigger. Jordan Phelps at the White House. Uh, what's the president's reaction? We know he had been preparing two different speeches. I guess he he's now knows which one he's going to give on Tuesday. Yeah, Devin, it looks like the president has now been forced to go with plan B to give the speech somewhere outside the House chamber. But we're just hearing from the president this afternoon. He opened up previously closed event to, to tell reporters about Nancy Pelosi. She canceled the State of the Union because she doesn't want to hear the truth. She's afraid of the truth. That was the president's uh, response to Nancy Pelosi's news today. But Devin, a bit of a silver lining here. The two sides are actually talking, or at least they're exchanging letters. President Trump <laughs> sent this letter this morning saying he intended to go forward. Nancy Pelosi wrote back to say, not so fast. Uh, the two sides haven't had direct talks since two weeks ago today uh, when they had that meeting at the White House that ended with President Trump storming out of the meeting uh, when Nancy Pelosi wouldn't accept uh, his demands for a border wall. It's a pretty dysfunctional way of talking by carrier pigeon down Pennsylvania Avenue or by letter attached to tweet uh, and then across the transom. Jordan Phelps at the White House, thank you so much. Uh, you know, it, it is going to be interesting. It sounds like there will be an event on Tuesday night, the 29th, uh, and we know the White House has been flirting with the possibility of potentially some sort of campaign-style rally for the president. And meanwhile, Nancy Pelosi using her gavel to push a political agenda as well, continuing to pass bills day in and day out to try Try to fund the government and reopen the government, basically daring the Senate and the White House to continue to ignore those and bills. And before we go, speaking of votes, there will be two votes tomorrow in the United States Senate, both of them to reopen the government, yeah. one on the president's plan, one on sort of a compromise plan. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is neither are expected to pass. One Democratic source described it to our team as a bunch of show votes. But still, progress that they are taking votes at all. 
uh, Senate Leader Mitch McConnell so far just really MIA in this process. And it's going to be hard for every one of those senators to continue to vote to keep the government shut down. So we'll keep an eye on that tomorrow right here in the briefing room. We'll have live coverage uh, and follow-up coverage of both of those votes in the United States Senate. And, of course, continuing coverage of all the stories you saw today. Download the ABC News app. If you haven't, check it out. You can follow us there live and see all the stories here today. Uh, meanwhile, we'll be back here 3.30 Eastern time. Great to have Mary Alice. As always, I'm Devin Dwyer in Washington. We'll see you next time.